After the proclamation of the gospel, we will respond with hymn 23. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when people know that they have a very short time to live, it suddenly becomes really clear what's most important in their lives. On September 11th, 2001, a certain plane had been hijacked and the passengers knew that they weren't going to see their families again. But they were given the opportunity to make one last phone call to their wife, their husband, their parent, their loved one. And they had a chance to say one last thing. So they were able to say goodbye. They were able to say how much they loved their loved one. I'm sure they didn't talk about things like clothes or shoes or TV shows or other details that we seem to clog our lives with. They knew what was most important and they took what little time they had left to say the thing that needed to be said. And Paul is in a similar situation here as he writes his letter to the Philippians. Paul is in prison and he expects that he is probably not going to be released. He doesn't expect that he's going to continue being their pastor. He's setting his household in order, the household of faith. He's setting his household in order, and he's teaching the thing that needs to be taught. What is the most important thing for this church at this time? What was absolutely necessary for the Philippians to know and to remember? And we might ask the same thing of ourselves today. Our situation here is very different from that of the Philippians, but the same question is helpful. In a lot of ways, the St. Albert congregation is standing at the beginning of something. This church has recently received a new pastor, and with the blessing of the Lord, you will experience a, a rich relationship together of growth, of encouragement. And there are probably a lot of ideas forming in the congregation about what kind of church you hope to be going forward, what kind of projects you hope to undertake. And we're on the cusp of a new year. A new year. So at the season, at the beginning of this season of church life, what is most important for you to remember. What do you need to know as you go forward as the people of God, as the body of Christ here in this place? The church at Philippi was called to be one, to have unity, to show unity. If they did this, they would make Paul's joy complete. This call, of course, still stands. We are all called to be united in Christ. And so the word of God comes to us today, this morning, in this way. Be united 
And we'll see two aspects. The comforting proof of unity. And second, the selfless practice of unity. So first, the comforting proof of unity. So the beginning of chapter 2 might seem a little bit abrupt, and we might think, or we might wonder whether the Apostle Paul had just changed the subject here. He was just talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. And then he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Well, this needs a little bit of explanation. We see in chapter 1 that it begins with the word, so. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So we're clued in by that little word that what we read here is very strongly connected to what came before in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we see that we are called to act like the heavenly citizens that we are. We're called to strive together for the advance of the gospel. And we can expect that as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, as followers of Christ, we will suffer for his name's sake. That's what Paul guarantees here in chapter 1. But these aren't just bare facts. This is leading somewhere. There is enormous comfort in what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is teaching the Philippians. What he's teaching us. The fact that you find yourselves as citizens of God's kingdom. The fact that you find yourselves in this relationship with each other. As members of this church. The fact that you find yourself suffering for the sake of Christ. This should bring peace to your hearts. Why? Because all of those things are displays of what is at the very root of all of this. And that is that you are united to Christ. You are united to Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that fact, brothers and sisters. You are united to Christ. This is how we have to understand all of this the experience of believers that we read about in at the end of chapter one the fact that we're citizens of god's kingdom we have the experience of fellowship the experience of sufferings since these things are true for you then this is what follows chapter two you do indeed have encouragement from being united to christ when we read there if if there is any encouragement in christ And this is a really special if. There's nothing uncertain about this if. It's not some of you. Some of you here might have some encouragement. And and if you happen to be one of those people, well then, you know, the rest applies. No. It's more like if you have encouragement in Christ, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and indeed there is, then complete my joy. Paul is joyful, as we see in chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. 
because of the work that God has been doing among them. This is proof that Paul, that Paul's work is blessed by God. It's proof that this church is indeed the work of God. We read there, verses 4 through 6, Always in every prayer of mine, well, I'll start at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's work, brothers and sisters. What a comfort it is to know that the life that you have, the path that you're on, this is the trail that has been blazed by God himself. You are the work of God. Later on, we'll get to what is meant with the completion of Paul's joy. But here we understand what joy Paul was talking about. Joy in the partnership of the gospel. Evidence of God's work in the church. So back to verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy. If you have even a hint of these things, and indeed you have them in abundance, make Paul's joy complete. We're going to go through these first four ifs, and we're going to unpack them and understand what they mean. And then we'll boil it down really simply afterwards and understand that this is the thing that propels us to unity. So here we go. The first one, encouragement in Christ. And we can understand this in two ways. So first, very simply, that there is a comfort, there is an emboldening that happens in the knowledge that one is united to Christ. And this is is the comfort that we confess that we have in Lord's Day in Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The question, what is your comfort? And the very simple answer is that I belong to Jesus Christ. And that's true here too, but we should think a little bit more specifically understanding what has just come before in chapter 1. This is especially true in the midst of suffering. We are united to Christ in suffering in our difficulty, in our striving to advance the gospel. Jesus Christ identifies with you when you face difficulty in his name. And Jesus guarantees that you will face these difficulties. Struggles will be a part of our life. Because of what God has transformed you into... You are at odds with the world, just by definition. Even if we haven't at this time been dragged from our houses into prison, we haven't been executed for our faith, we know that other Christians in the world are. We are at odds with the world. When we're Christians who don't compromise the truth of God's word, we're met with hostility. 
think especially if your profession is bound up with this if 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 you're a geologist or a paleontologist if you're studying rocks and dinosaurs and and you have to defend your belief in a young earth there's not a lot of universities that are ready to hire you if you speak truthfully about sexuality and gender you're going to be despised if you take a biblical stance on abortion or as it's commonly referred to in our culture on reproductive rights you're going to be despised you're going to be considered an enemy of progress you're an enemy of humanity and when you feel that sting of opposition you can know you can know that Jesus regards an attack on you as an attack on himself. He said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you suffer in Christ, there's also this glorious promise of encouragement and emboldening in Christ. These things are to your glory. And Paul is telling the church, look, I'm in prison too. I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And you are suffering too. We're in this together. Whatever difficulty is given to you, it's also given to me. I have it too. And remember, it is given of God. We're being shaped by God through these things into his amazing workmanship. You will shine like stars when God is finished polishing you with trials. This is your encouragement, especially in suffering. Jesus Christ is with you in this. So the next thing, if any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love. Now we can understand this love to be the love of the Father. And this makes the most sense when we recognize that these first three are very similar to the benediction that we receive during the worship services. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit. When we consider our relationship with God, when we think about the life that we have with Him, it's really important, it is really important that we remember that God's love, His love is the reason that we find ourselves in such a wonderful state. You're going to have days Every one of you, you're going to have days, you're going to have times where you don't feel particularly worthy of God's love. You're not always going to feel worthy of His grace. How could God love me after what I've done when I know what goes on in my heart on a constant basis? We have to remember that the grace that is shown to us in Jesus Christ is this, that, that God lo shows love to you, a sinner. God loves the one who by rights should have been his enemy. Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can, we can be tricked, we can be deceived into thinking that God loves the ones who have earned his love. 
We think, well, you know, I've behaved myself this past week. I've lived okay, and now God is pleased with me. Or we go the other way. We go in the opposite direction. I'm completely horrible. I'm a sinner. God couldn't possibly love me anymore. God couldn't love me. No, both of those extremes are wrong. We can't think like that. God sent His Son because He first loved us. We are together now. We are a church because God loved. God's love has never, ever been conditioned by anything special in any one of us. God's love for the sinner is the cause. It's the reason, the source of everything else that follows. His love for us is the reason that he calls us and equips us to have the same kind of love for each other. He equips us by the power of his spirit. And it's the next thing that we find. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit. Paul is reaching a crescendo with his pleading here. If any participation or fellowship with the Spirit, God's love is the reason that we're united to Christ, and he accomplishes this by his Spirit. And since we are made alive by the power of the same Spirit, the same Spirit of God, we have fellowship with each other. We live and breathe by the same Spirit of God. This is what connects us together. This is, this is the one thing that we have in common. There are a lot of people, a lot of different people in this church. Business people, construction workers, mechanics, moms, teachers, retired people. What in the world would draw you all together? What could you possibly all have in common? We are all alive by the same Spirit. This is why we find ourselves as a church. Lord's Day 20, we confess that the Holy Spirit is given to me to make me share in Christ and all His benefits, to comfort me, to remain with me forever. And this is how the church is gathered and preserved by Christ's Spirit and His Word in the unity of the true faith. So let's, let's boil all that down. That's a lot of information. What does all of that mean you know, in simple terms? Union with Christ, receiving the love of God, experiencing participation or experiencing the fellowship of the Spirit, these things teach us the what and the why and the how of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing here. The what. We are members of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Our purpose is to be related to God and to each other in this way. Why? Why, why is that the case? Why are we united to Christ? Because of God's love. God's love is the very first cause of all of this that's the only reason you are dear to god god wanted to make you dear to him and therefore you are dear to each other and then how does that happen how does that come about it's by the power of the spirit you are alive by the same spirit and therefore you have fellowship 
And all of those things, all of those things produce something that is God-worked in you. If all of those things are true, then you will have the same affection and sympathy for each other in your guts that God has for you. That's the word for affection that we find in our text. If any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, affection. This is a word for innards, for guts. When God has done these things for you, in you, and among you, then you will feel it in your guts for each other. So look around. This is amazing. God is at work here. This is the body of Christ. This is the workmanship of God. We are united to Christ. Why? Because we have been loved by God. He's made his covenant with us to be our God and our Heavenly Father. He has promised us his spirit to bind us to Christ and to each other. All of these things are true here. And now we are called to be what we are. United. Be united because you are united. You are called to the selfless practice of unity. And that's our second point. We referred to the first part of chapter 1 earlier in the sermon about what Paul's joy was all about. He expressed joy because he was confident that God will bring to completion the work that he had begun in the Philippians. This is why Paul says, make my joy complete, knowing that God would continue to work with them in his will for their lives. And this is a really critical reminder at the beginning of this point. When we're considering the commands of God, when we're considering the things that He calls us to do, the things that are required of us, our obligations, we can't for a second think that God's grace has taken us so far. And now we have to kick, kick something in. Now we have to contribute something. That we of ourselves have to figure out how to practice unity. Our life with God begins with His grace and with His power, and it's brought to completion by His grace and by His power. It's like we read in Colossians 2, verse 6, Just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, now continue in Him. Your, your forgiveness and your salvation are a gift, a free gift from God, but so is your holy life. And that's why Paul rooted the command to practice unity. He rooted that in the fact that their unity is an act of God and not their own doing. If you know in your heart and in your mind and in your guts that you are united to Christ, that you are loved by God, that you are partakers of the Spirit... And you know, then you know that God is at work in you. And so continue, continue to be a work of God in your practice of unity going forward. This is grace upon grace. 
Since God has made you what has made you one, be one. God has made you one. Act like one. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord of one mind. Now, being like-minded, it doesn't it doesn't mean pondering about the same things. It's a lot stronger and it's more deliberate. Set your minds on you know on purpose. Set your minds on the same things. Paul teaches later in chapter 4, set your minds on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, set your mind on those things. Be immersed in the beauty and the excellence of the Word of God. Be constantly engaged in God's instruction for you. Come to know intimately the revelation of the glory of God. Know Jesus Christ and have the mind of Christ. When you do this, you will be on guard against the disunity that comes. Disunity that comes when we we all have our minds set on different self-serving things. If our minds are set on the things of God, if all our minds are set on the things of God, then guess what? We have our minds set on the same excellent things. And we're blessed. We're blessed by desiring and striving after the same things. We have a common goal, the advance of the gospel, the well-being of the church, looking after the ones among us who are suffering. Have the same love. This doesn't mean having identical preferences for things that that don't matter. You, You don't all have to agree that Pepsi is better than Coke. Of course not. But the love that God has for your brother should produce in your heart The same kind of love for your brother. You love the other person more than some other need that you had. Their needs are more important than your own. Think about how this love for the church, for the family of God, can can be derailed. So in, in our congregation in Providence, we've just started renovating our building. And this is a major opportunity for people to get really upset with each other. Maybe you experienced a little bit of this when you were planning the construction of this building. It might become really important for one person to have a certain feature in the kitchen. And another person might feel really strongly about a particular kind of flooring. And we can so quickly care about some preference we can care about a preference so much that we're willing to let another person be injured by that be hurt by that and this is the remnant of wickedness that that's lurking in in all of our hearts and it can flare up really quickly what must be our love above all else love 
is truly exercised when another person's needs become more important to us than our own. Paul gives an example of what true Christian love looks like. This is in 1 Corinthians 6. Someone who loves, someone who truly loves their brothers and sisters would rather be wronged. They would rather lose something that they're entitled to than endanger their relationship. Could you imagine, one of you kids, imagine winning a contest, winning a tournament, winning some kind of game, and you won this wonderful prize, like like a brand new bike or a new iPad. But because of some mistake that was made, your friend got that prize instead of you. And you knew that You had a right to it. That was your bike. That was your iPad. And you could make it so that that prize was taken away from your friend and it was given to you. You could make that happen. But you knew that it would wreck your friendship. That person was not going to be your friend anymore after this. What would you do? Would you be willing to be wronged? Would you be willing to lose out on that prize? Would you just take that hit because of love? Because you loved your friend? How much do you love your friend? In verses 3 and 4, following our text, we're taught how we should consider others more important than ourselves, put their needs above our own. And we have the example of love The example that surpasses knowledge in the following verses. In verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus humbled himself in a way that we can't fully, completely wrap our minds around. The extent, the extent that he humbled himself. He was willing to set aside his glory. Glory that was rightfully his. He did it to endure existence as a human on earth. He was willing to die for us because of his love for us. He was willing to be forsaken by God to experience the hell of forsakenness. That is love's example. Even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guess what? God promises us that when he gives us his spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We can have love and concern for each other that is excellent, that is pure. We are given the ability to set our minds on the same thing, caring for the well-being of this church, looking after the eternal life of our brothers and sisters. What matters most? What matters most? So at the beginning of a new year, at the end of an old year, at the beginning of a new one, going forward together, what's most important? What do we set our efforts on? What do we set our minds on? 
We're called to be one in Jesus Christ because God has made us one. There's nothing more glorious, there's nothing more radiant on this earth than to see what God has done to us in Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship. In Christ, we are being joined together to become the temple of God where he lives by his spirit. We're being made to shine like stars in this world because the church, because this church is a miracle. We are the beautiful bride of Christ and our minds ought to be set on continuing in Christ together as one body, one body with many different parts showing above all things our love for God and our love for each other. This is a display of the glorious work of Jesus Christ, the one who has earned all these things, the one who loves us with inexpressible love, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, the one who deserves all praise and all glory forever and ever. Amen.